Welcome to Incommunicado, a weekly podcast exploring communication and the weird and wonderful realm of modern language. There's a special part of communication that's scorned by many, understood by few, but loved by us, and that part is jargon. Using jargon as a starting point for discussion, we want to delve deeper into what communication really is, how we communicate in our day-to-day lives, how we develop meaning through language, and how we can better navigate it. In each episode, we will be joined by a guest, delving into some of the big questions that we have. Why do we use jargon? When do we use it? Could we live without it? And when does it leave us incommunicado? Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast will be hosted by myself, James Dellin, Creative Director of James Dellin Creative, a video communication and content marketing business. James Burford, a recent music technology graduate from the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, who also works as a freelance marketer with specific focus on managing social media campaigns. And Amy Borchard, a creative consultant specialising in HR strategy for the museums and cultural heritage sector internationally. How are you guys doing today? Are you okay? Very well, thank you. Yes, Good. great, thank you. Today we are joined by the wonderful Olia Petrakova. She is the artistic director of Make Tank, which started as a prototype of a creative hub with emphasis on performing arts and is now transitioning to be more inclusive and placing more emphasis on innovation as a cultural lab. She's also a lecturer of MA Creativity at the University of Exeter, which is now in its second year after a successful launch in September 2019. Olia, it's lovely to have you here today. So, um, Amy, thanks for that introduction. Olia, I'd like to hear a bit more from you about where where you're from. Give our listeners a a really good flavour for uh, your journey to date. And I would like our listeners to have a full context of why we are so delighted to have you. Is that okay? Sure. Thank you. Sure. So I was born in the Soviet Union, and uh, then when I was 19, I actually went to the United States to study there, and that was two weeks before Soviet Union collapsed. So when I, you know, started my studies uh, in the United States, where I did my, um, I did an MBA, um, and when I was going to United States, I was leaving university in St. Petersburg. I was um, majoring in applied mathematics and uh, systems of management and control, which was really interesting. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I was very happy to be leaving that. <laughs> very complex. <laughs> so, and I was, uh, yeah, and I thought something more pragmatic, uh, I can apply uh, that set of skills would be MBA. And I wanted to learn more about um, that about economics and and um, the whole capitalist um, economics would be, you know, at that time was new for me. Mm. After I got my MBA, I s- decided that I need to go into arts completely. So, so, <laughs> so complete change of, um, um, yeah, complete change of interest and passion. But I, I have to say that both degrees actually are fundamental in the way I think about arts and creativity. And that was a good decision to to play with numbers first, and now play with concepts and constructs and ideas. Wow! Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> that's one thing a bit problematic here. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so about five years ago, I moved to Exeter because my husband uh, was offered a job at the drama department uh, as a lecturer. And uh, shortly after, I was um, hired on. A part-time basis to teach uh, drama as well and uh, in 2019 we um, you know we launched a drama de- well it wasn't actually drama department it was um, uh, College of Humanities um, which is phenomenal launched this MA creativity innovation and business strategy which the only part there is creativity that um, places it I think within College of Humanities um, and I think because of that background that I just described to you, mm-hmm. I was offered a job and um, it was quite um, new, experimental, challenging, and very rewarding at the same time when the first year was completed. It was a journey. So as part of your journey, um, I gather the theatre was quite a large part of your life for uh, a while. How did you end up in the theatre and what did you do in, in that realm? I, as I mentioned, uh, when I once I got my MBA and I worked for some time in a book selling company, 
Um, but I also felt that I needed something more challenging than working in the marketing department of a of a bookstore company. And opportunity came about to move to Los Angeles. So I encountered lots of phenomenal teachers and um, actors and immersed myself into acting world. And I also came across the fact that I am Russian and I'm being typecast and the roles that I'm offered are not the roles that I want to play to advance the, the narrative yeah. of the mail order brides and everything else that comes along with, <laughs> with Eastern European uh, name and uh, character. And that actually pivoted me towards starting my own theater company. I think the moment where to start a theater company, you need a space. So I started um, I started a venue in Hollywood on Route 66 in the in central part of Hollywood, Santa Monica Boulevard. It was a former garage that was built in 1940s. And it turned into a small theater under 99 wow. seats and five little studios. And that ran for about 10 years. So that was a good lab, actually. Again, it was starting something new with a space, running a space. I've never done that before. Starting a theater company, never done that before. When we, I sat down with actors who were part of the company and they said, well, now we need a director and we need to decide on what plays we're going to play. They said, no, you're the director. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, it's always been trial by fire. And the first production that I chose to direct had 24 actors in it. Wow. And <laughs> so again, I don't know why, but it's in part, I like challenges, I guess you could say that and doing something that's bigger than, than a two hander or a small cast of players. And, and Los Angeles was ideal for that because it has so many actors and we were under 99 seat equity plan. And so um, there's actors just want to play. So it was more like a club. We were sure. um, staging productions, experimenting, playing for, yeah, for 10 years. And wow. then, you know, here's Exeter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> from, from LA to Exeter. Well, I mean, some incredible experiences that you've um, just spoken about there. I mean, Incommunicado, the podcast is all about language uh, with a particular bent on jargon. And as a former theatre enthusiast myself, I am very, very aware of the amount of jargon that's used, um, certainly in a stage context and obviously doing the video stuff that I do now, I'm very aware of the jargon that's used within that industry as well. But I'd like to have a little go at this idea of stage jargon. Now, as I remember it, way back when, like 120 years ago, whenever it was that I was <laughs> actually doing drama, I remember things like stage right was left and stage left was right and up was front and back was up and, you know, all these crazy things just sort of came to light of, of how we talk in the theatre as, as players and, and directors and um, and even crew as well. They have to be aware of what all these things mean. So my question is, why do you think theatre jargon evolved to be from what I would say is the audience perspective? Um, I would say, actually, what you just described is from the stage perspective is it did i get that the wrong way around it has been a long time i must admit yeah, yeah. however i think your point we also have is you might recall terminology of like house left house right yes so that that remains but when a director is sitting in the audience director has to give notes to actors or give directions to actors and director has to speak then the directions that actors are um, <laughs> are using. Sure. Which is actor is staring at a director and director is sitting <laughs> in the audience. So stage right is actually when the director is looking at the stage. That is what would be house left. So of course okay. it's, it's a left when we're looking at it. But, you know, there, there are so many perspectives, not just like the audiences and actors. Um, lighting designers would have their set of perspectives on the grid, um, obviously. Um, they have their terminology and stage designers would use the, you know, the grid that we, do, I mean, the, the stage uh, directions that we just described. Mm -hmm. But sound designers have their uh, terminology. 
it's such a polymathic form theater. It's really something that as a director, I think you have to learn to speak many languages and to be able to converse with a sound designer and a stage designer. That's why tech runs are usually quite stressful <laughs> for <laughs> actors, for designers, for stage managers, because so many different jargons are flying mm -hmm. and everybody's trying to understand each other and the director sh should generally be the main translator. But sometimes directors don't know some of the terms. Wow. And That's quite interesting because so far we've um, spoken to people of where the departments across the board pretty much have a common thread of the jargon that they use. And it sounds like the theatre, because there are so many wide and varying different departments within any production house or in, in theatres particularly, like you've just described, it's really interesting that the director is the translator between all of that. So there's not a common language thread, it's a common person thread. And that uh, that director has to almost learn all of these different languages. And, and as you say, sometimes they get it wrong. Amy, you, you were going to say something. Sorry. No, that, that's kind of what I was going to say. So what you were saying before, which is that a lot of directors come in from a different background. So mm -hmm. they have this um, the, a leadership role within that rehearsal room. But actually, they don't know a lot of the language that the actors are very, very familiar with. Um, and on another note, I mean, t tell me if that's kind of your understanding as well, but on another note, I just feel I'm already confused by what you two are both saying because I'm not familiar with theatre. And when you think that jargon and technical terms are supposed to be used for the purposes of efficiency, I can imagine standing on that stage and spending a good 10 seconds like, what is house left, what is house <laughs> right? But it, it relies on you knowing exactly what that means to which person for you to be able to just respond immediately. And you don't have that the luxury of time in in the rehearsal room to, you know, to spend the time figuring out what that means. That's the interesting part. Often, why why tech rehearsals, which is pretty much the last part of a rehearsal process, why they're so stressful for everyone is because actors find themselves sometimes standing on stage for an hour doing nothing hmm. because everything else is being being worked around them yeah. and terms of flying all around of, yeah. you know, have to do with sound cues, lighting cues, yeah. you know, uh, numbers, um, levels, you name it. For directors, you know, directors do get educated nowadays, so they don't just come like me from, from a mathematics sure. <laughs> business background. I had to learn a lot. I was complete autodidact. Um, I did spend a lot of time with Meyer Hold and Stanislavski uh, in my bed, <laughs> <laughs> just reading books galore. And I, I remember like waking up in the morning and there would be like books in my bed. Because I would just be reading them, falling asleep and waking up reading them again. Because they were also autodidacts in their mm. own way. Mm. They were learning on through practice and then they were systematizing their findings. And actually both of them are responsible for starting a theater laboratory um, in 1905. And the idea that theater as an art form needs to have R&D, research and development, and seeking new forms and new ways of acting, new ways of um, staging was really key. Well, that, yeah, that is interesting, Oliver. I mean, there's plenty of uh, theatrical jargon that's been uh, thrown around already that I'm trying to get my uh, my, my own <laughs> head around. But if we go with this idea that, that certainly verbal jargon um, is a way of somewhat getting to the point quicker, I wondered your opinion on things such as uh, stage layout or costume design, props. Do you kind of consider that, that they're used as a sort of visual jargon to help set the scene for the audience quicker than you could potentially uh, via dialogue? Oh, yes, absolutely. If we're talking about Meyerhold, the whole idea is that theatre is not literature. It's not a literary form. It's its own form. And the staging, the theatricality of production is key. And it does consist of scenography, which is, you know, stage uh, design and costume design are all part of scenography. Um, props are all part of scenography. And actually that role of a scenographer in Russia is called artist. It's still to this day is considered artist and director 
theater director and artist are the two key people who are actually responsible for staging. Uh, and it's it happens, uh, as Marhol pointed out in his early lectures when uh, director's program started in Moscow in 1918. He was stating that it's very rare that a theater director is an artist as well. Mm. We have those exceptions in today's world, like Robert Wilson, who, as I mentioned, was an architect. He is a director, in, uh, but first and foremost, he's, he's an artist, which sometimes, actually, the fact that he's not really that <laughs> much of a theater director does is evident when you watch the, the way he works with actors. His mm. actors are a little bit more on a sort of automatic, robotic delivery. Mm. Um, so Wilson has his style, and that style is cold. I would say it has interesting effect, but it but it's but it's affected. Mm. So, um, so well, what director what director does working with a scenographer, which is again really really important, or artist, however we call this other role, it is to create this dialogue between the stage. And the audience. So it's a conversation, whether we realize it or not, and it's built on association. What audience is associating? So what, like you pointed out, layout, costume design, props. Inevitably, because we are conditioned beings, humans, we are mm. very conditioned beings. We want to understand and to make sense of what we are seeing or hearing. So we immediately link it to associations. So each part of the stage has an effect on the audience's perception and a director has to create two important aspects in staging, which is the world of the production. And here comes another jargon, which is really <laughs> interesting. It's mise-en-scene, which is French. It means um, stage placement, right? Um, how things are placed on stage, but that in, so everything we just talked about it could be uh, what is on stage, how it is placed, mm-hmm. how actors are placed on stage. But also, of course, beyond just placement, the, the whole point of drama and theater is action, what is happening on stage. So, yeah, that's mise-en-scene, mm-hmm. um, new word. <laughs> so, so we had a similar conversation about that, but in relation to film. So uh, we kept going back to the idea of, sorry to bring it up again, but if you have like a broken ashtray, all the different things that that can represent within a single scene. And it can be multi-layered, it doesn't always mean the same thing. So again, it's about association. What's the context of using that prop or or that you know piece of stage design, which is really interesting. And how do the characters interact with that? It's fundamental, yeah. It's it's the dramaturgy, yeah. which is an, another important aspect, another another piece of jargon. What is dramaturgy? Everything in theater, we, we, we create jargon, but the important thing to understand about theatrical jargon, while stage left, stage right is pretty clear, but we are talking about more of a director-specific jargon like mise-en-scene, it becomes not as clear. You can assign many things to it, so you kind of... Sw- it blurs the lines. It doesn't have a very immediate, 100% clear definition. And that's good because as an art form, theater has to have space around it mm. that the audience can actually create its own meaning and associations. The as ambiguity is a, is, is a huge part of artistic methodology. Sure. So it, it, on that, though, um, talking about ambiguity, you know, we're big fans of effective communication and communication in its wide and varying forms as well what is it about the arts that makes it a credible way of communicating real life relationships emotions stories that sort of thing i mean the last thing you just mentioned stories (laughs) yeah yeah so we speak like again theater and film story is the leading art in it because as i said as humans we we want to understand we, we want to make sense what makes it credible is the stories we we as artists choose to tell and then how we choose to tell them mm-hmm. and stories is they make us realize that human life is you know fraught with complications misunderstandings and unfortunate turns of events and and that's why we call it drama uh, but how we tell those stories 
that's the art of theater in, is, in film is what makes big difference. The art of theater can make audience feel transformed, empowered, uplifted, connected, empathic. Um, it's live. That's really important and can remind us what is important in our life, which is, you know, human contact and exchange. We get reminded through theater that there is joy in very simple things which we tend to forget. I think in this pandemic world, we are we, we are forced to be reminded about it because all of a sudden we are so much more in our house. But most importantly also, I find that, that theater as an art form is reminding us about our childhood and the importance of play. Because as actors, for actors, when I work with actors, I know I have to keep their creativity agi like agile and responsive. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we have to incorporate play and games and improvisation in the rehearsal process. Just to round up on, on this section of the podcast, storytelling is at the heart of any business now. I mean, James earlier on mentioned that he worked, well, he's the director of a creative marketing agency. And, you know, storytelling is at the heart of everything that he does for his clients. That in itself is a universal language. And then what you just mentioned earlier about play, that feeds into business more and more and more nowadays. And um, where I think this idea of play and being creative, it is no longer separate to the business world. Um, and I, I think that takes us on nicely to talk about Make Tank, actually. Um, and I know James Burford has a question that he'd like to open up. I think it's important to talk about Megtank. Obviously, um, it's your latest innovation in, in Exeter, Olia. Megtank is an artist-led grassroots organisation. Its mission is to provide a sustainable community-based platform for performance practitioners within the city to pioneer experimentation, collaboration and, create, uh, and creative civic engagement. Make Tank aims to provide a space for local artists to develop practice, create new initiatives and exchange knowledge and resources. Um, so essentially, Olya, I just wanted to ask you, you know, essentially how this description took shape. The language that you use in there, experimentation, and creating new initiatives, um, exchanging knowledge, is this language directed at um, potential investors in, in Make Tank? Is it directed to the artists themselves or is it the consumers of the art that come there? I wonder if you could just um, explain uh, Make Tank a little bit for our um, listeners. Um, I think it's, it's a very good question. Who is it directed at? It's directed at artists because Make Tank when it came about in 2018 and then it was launched actually in uh, 2019 on February 1st. It came as a response to what was missing in, in the city. There, there wasn't a, um, a creative hub for performance um, specifically. We just lost a small but really dynamic and really important uh, theater space called Bike Shed, which was a home to um, productions that were touring daily, uh, not daily, weekly, sorry. So there were like 52 productions a year which were visiting Exeter. And that small theater was in the basement. Uh, it had, I believe, around 40 seats. It was a very, very tiny stage. And it also, because of the limitations of the space, it, it, it would attract very particular type of productions. And I saw a gap, for instance, that there wasn't enough of contemporary performance, um, physical theater, dance, and that is the world that I'm coming from because I'm interested mm. in, in mm. those forms that are more embodied forms of theater. Of course. So it came... Uh, uh, it came because of that. Um, it's also because I am an artist and consider myself an artist. So um, I was working also with a young emerging, emerging artist who graduated just recently at that point from drama department at the University of Exeter. And her name is Charlotte Evans. And we collaborated. We, we partnered on establishing this venue and we went back and forth on what the mission and the purpose of the venue would be. And uh, yes, so also it has this <laughs> interesting twist of a sustainable community-based platform and that you know, might take uh, a few minutes to unpack. Mm -hmm. But basically <laughs> sustainable in this particular case was used to say it needs to provide, um, it has to be sustainable on multiple levels where 
this platform to be built, it needs to have a long-term thinking vision so that efforts of, of artists who are establishing an organization are actually paying off. So thinking about human resources, sustainability in that particular case. But also, of course, sustainable meaning that we are not um, we are environmentally conscious and aware. And then community-based platform has many, many layers. On one hand, the idea was that it's very important for this particular creative hub to be really a hub. It, it needs to be a place for community of practice, for artists. So the first community is actually building a community of creatives and artists in the city. And there was no platform for that when, when 2018, 2019 happened. Then also community-based, we can very quickly say, well, there is a larger point of communities in Exeter. So artists who will be engaged with community-based practices would be um, something that uh, Make Tank is particularly interested in socially engaged practice. Hmm. So all kind of has multiple like everything it's 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 a bit ambiguous but but yet it can <laughs> it does it That's does a good thing though isn't it to different people yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but if you notice that the word experimentation so we didn't call it at that point a lab we we called it creative hub but we wanted to make sure that experimentation is featured as as the three pillars of of make tanks mission experimentation collaboration and creative civic engagement mm. and that i think will remain i those are the pillars in which i yeah. I, I can i can rest <laughs> or or work on yeah. I, those things are just for me are fundamental to to my practice i would like to do a little quick exercise with both of the jameses right now and um, before we move on um, I would like to just ask you both. So when you hear the word hub, what do you think? And when you hear the word lab, what do you think? So within a cultural context. So the word hub reminds me of, you know, little murmurs of activity and excitement and little things that are happening. And I guess if you describe Make Tank as a hub, I can kind of see how that would be a fitting description because it is a space where... There are there is a lot of activity and there as um, as Olya said there's a lot of constructs being developed. So then, if we use the word lab, obviously that has been a bit more of a scientific um, background. So maybe you know describing Maytank as a lab does it bring in a bit more of a theoretical in influence from from art? Yeah, tough tough one to try and unpick from the top of my head. I have to say. So a hub to me is quite a transient place. Actually, there's a lot of in and out happening in a hub. It's not necessarily somewhere where you might stay. I mean, it's it's usually prefixed by the word travel. In my humble experience, you know, you hear of these travel hubs around the world. And, and I think that's what gives me this impression of a hub being somewhere that isn't um, particularly permanent. Whereas a lab, the image that's conjured up in my head is a room within a building, a very static idea. Not, not to say that static is a bad um, uh, or, or negative adjective in this particular context. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said static, maybe I should have said solid, mm -hmm. but it's a space in which you can try new potions and try new things. And, you know, the, the, it, it is quite scientific, James. There's the idea of the mad professor in the lab coat that's entirely useless, mixing mm. chemicals together and getting that hilarious elephant toothpaste that comes out. I wonder if yeah. um, a, the, the dramatic equivalent of elephant toothpaste is phenomenal writing and incredible performance, you know. I think that's where it's so important when we think about language, because if if you have hub in the tagline um, when you're talking about your organisation, the differences in perception of, of what that organisation does and what its purpose is. So, so we had a similar conversation at work the other day, um, and we were talking about what does the future of museums look like? And we were talking about this idea that there's a perception that museums are all about, you know, they're collections based, they're showcasing what already exists, what's already out in the world. But actually, more and more, museums are moving towards that model of this is where things happen. This is where new things are happening. And when you think of all the like programmatic elements as well, it's no longer just about showing, but it's about doing and setting an example for what can come next. And I think, again, so when we think about Make Tank, it is so important, I think, using that word lab when we think about the future of 
Make Tank 2.0. Olia, I'm not sure if you'd like to use this as an opportunity to introduce what's <laughs> actually happening at Make Tank right now. Sure. Um, just to quickly actually um, illuminate a little bit 2.0 and 1.0. So when we started, as I mentioned, it was like a six-month prototype project that we then got ex we extended for another year. And so we started February 1st, 2019. And then, of course, 220 rolls in. We were right at the pivotal stage saying, okay, the, the, the pilot was very successful. We definitely want to stay longer. Now we really need to program it and apply for proper funding. We've um, grown. And then COVID happened. And during that time, everything changed. Everything changed in, in this world. We, we, I felt that institutions froze and agile, responsive organizations and networks, actually an individual and some really passionate, active individual artists picked up this opportunity to really state issues and concerns and new ways of working. A great artist to check out is Bethany Wells. She's based in Sheffield and she's a designer. And I just had a wonderful conversation with her about it because I was so inspired by the kind of work that she did during, um, during the pandemic. So that agility, I think, is key. Uh, so that for Make Tank, because we were agile and because we really then questioned what it is that we are supposed to be doing, we went through uh, an experiment of um, strategic planning research we had uh, three teams that we formed with uh, 10 interns who focused on identity. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? What is the real point of Make Tank in, in Exeter? And then we also explored business models and we've explored programming. And out of that experiment that we did in 2020 in October, in September, October, we actually identified that we kind of got stuck on the identity because we really needed to rework. The hu creative hub didn't seem to be as relevant anymore. Mm. And what was relevant was, um, and, not, and also not just contemporary performance or performing arts, what was really relevant was culture. From the research that um, all three teams did, it, it pushed us to understand that we need to encompass in a small city like Exeter, focusing on one particular artistic form um, or discipline is actually not suitable, at least not for Make Tank, because there isn't that much activity that is happening within one specific uh, creative form. Again, it's a, it's a smaller city. And what did need to happen was inquiry into culture. So that's how we leaned into what if we are a cultural lab and what does it mean? And the more we started to lean into it, the more it started to make sense because Exeter is now um, UNESCO's city of literature. And while literature is quite uh, important to culture and to performance, we also were quite inspired by the fact that we are now part of much larger UNESCO Creative Cities Network, which then is focusing on many more other cultural aspects such as film and media and uh, gastronomy and design. And uh, we were like, oh, okay. I'm, personally, myself, I, I've reached that point in my life when I'm interested in more things than just theater. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's where <laughs> that's where lab is like we need to we need to expand our our offer and our field of interest. Sure. Actually. One thing I just picked up on there, Olia, was that you're talking about your identity, and you know that's something that's very close to my heart as um, somebody who has uh, cut their teeth in in design and brand identity in particular. I gather Make Tank have a fancy sparkly new logo. And I think it from from somebody who knows design and somebody who's interested in iconography and the way that um, the Make Tank logo looks, I wanted to ask you what that process was like. You know, where did the initial idea come from? And what did you want it to communicate to your audience? It was a process that was based 
a lot in research. So again, R&D is probably my lifestyle, to be, to be honest. I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time researching designers. And I came across this interesting design agency. I think what, what struck me with their work was play. They were very playful and the designs that they were focusing on actually have an immediate social impact. And actually, Lyle responded to a presentation that we had uh, with, um, with a strategic internship. The first response was just processing who we are. He created his concept process as a puzzle, and he said it's going to be a response to that. So he identified that we use the word sustainable, which for me that it had to be a, a bit more futuristic. We used the word ecology, which for him meant that the logo has to have something that is has systems in it. Did he kind of tell you that that was his interpretation of those words? It was always process. And two of the identity team consultants, Lily and Lindsay, were often in the meetings and they took lots and lots of notes. So I think it was, it was an opportunity, like in those conversations, questions are asked and reflections are uh, engaged and you're reflecting and thinking and you're trying to identify the whole identity is such a it's such a process of, of reflection really and getting to the bottom of why you do what you do why do you care sustainability i think passion drives in a way sustainability mm. isn't it funny that all of that could be summed up by your logo one thing i've learned and continuing to learn for the for the scope of this podcast is that jargon just doesn't exist purely in a verbal form, you know, in, through words. It can be defined also in um, uh, imagery as well. Symbols, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. For sure. So, uh, there's something in what you just said earlier that I wanted to pick up on you. Um, you. You know, you're talking about how you get funding, and we can all imagine that form filling and hoop jumping it, that that has to be done in order to get through these um, levels of bureaucracy. So I'm wondering, how much do you agree with the idea that we use jargon in order to just tick the boxes? I don't think that we necessarily use jargon to tick the boxes. I think what happens in funding applications is the perception the the funders are very well educated and that the language that is spoken um, at the universities. We have Russell Group Universities. There is a lot based on research. It's a very much a driving force. And what does what research means is invention of the new jargon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> of new forms because you have to prove that you're doing something new. So you create new nomenclature. You know, new new frameworks, new tools, new methodologies. All of that then seeps into funding. But what it creates is it creates a, a serious barrier for artists who are not educated in the similar uh, schools or come from very different backgrounds who very much deserve to receive funding. Sure. But they have to fill out these applications and use the, the words and the language that's not, that's not uh, fluent to them. So I think what's necessary actually in the in the arts and cultural world is what make tank will be doing which is creating incubators where projects are funded much in a much more responsive agile way uh, by applying for a, a pot of money that then is uh, directly distributed to the initiatives there's this idea that it creates barriers rather than it actually aids people to to get that funding. I, I understand that. That's really interesting. I think interesting. it's just like knowing your audience. Like you yeah. need to speak their language and they mm -hmm. need to understand where their money is going. Of course. Mm. Um, and I think within arts and culture, like you might be coming up with new models and new terms, but your funder needs to understand what that means. I don't want to say in real terms, but in, in basic terms. Um, I, d I don't think it's so much a case of lying as it is just being very, very clear and knowing mm. who your audience is. And speaking the same language as well, one thing we've we've uh, discussed in in another podcast is this creation of in groups and out groups th through the use of jargon. So I suppose if you are 
literally using the right words, uh, you've you've got more chance of your um, your funding application being approved. I, I would imagine if you're demonstrating that. You know, through the use of jargon, you know exactly what you're talking about, where the money's going to be spent, etc. You, you're you're putting yourself in a better position to be accepted. Yes, absolutely. But it's also what actually Amy pointed out that it it, it works both both ways. So for labs, for instance, it's probably going to be very difficult because in part part of the labs process is process. Hmm. So when we apply for funding, we are not necessarily applying for something we know that we're going to get. <laughs> Mm, sure. Meaning, like we're going through the process of research and development, and what's going to end up is is unknown. We can state the purpose, we can that's state point, yeah. ingredients and, and, and everything else, and that's actually been a really big part of recent conversations. That artistic process needs to be funded as much as the final product. And in mm -hmm. fact, if we keep funding products, we are. Uh, depleting the ecology. We're not nourishing the ecology, we deplete the cultural and artistic ecology and we're creating kind of a very stamp, very predictable uh, um, offer. Like, should we know the answer? No, I, I don't think we should know the answer. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think most artists um, might have an idea uh, if you're painting something, you might have an idea, but you have no, I not not real idea what the final product will look like. Yeah, exactly. You work with so many different. Um, I think, what is the word? As an artist, you work with so many different stimuli, mm -hmm. and that stimuli effects from second to second, from moment to moment, impacts your process, and your final product will be um, will be affected. We can't submit that to Arts Council and say, uh, you know, I have an idea, just give me the money for the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Can I have some I, money, please? <laughs> the real tension, yeah. So this is quite a big question. Um, and we are coming back round to um, your role as a lecturer on MA Creativity. When I first introduced it, I only said the word creativity, but we know that it's a, a it's a longer name. So Olia teaches on a master's program called Creativity, Innovation and Business Strategy. And this course merges the two. And I think it's been quite boundary pushing in every sense of the word. Um, you should all look it up if you're looking to do a master's course. <laughs> anyway, moving on from that. Um, so I, ha I have a big question for you, Olio. So we all know that there has been and there still is a common perception that the creative world and the business world are polar opposites. And I think the MA programme does a perfect job of disrupting this notion and actually helps us to understand the value of creativity and creative thinking within a business context and as key ingredients uh, in any innovative business venture. So my question to you is, um, do you think that using more of the language and ways of thinking and communicating from the performing arts world could actually transform the way that we think about and do business in the future? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, it's fundamental to uh, collaborate with artists and bring artists to businesses and to create the new construct recently that I came across that Zaid Hassan um, created <laughs> in terms of research and development, a social lab. Mm -hmm. A social lab is about a social space for very diverse stakeholders. So if the process of developing a new service or a product or a system for the business, it would really benefit to work through like a social lab structure, which means it's a piloting testing, trying things out, and in that social diverse uh, stakeholder group, I think there has to be at least one artist, if not mm -hmm. two, because they can really help with their methodologies. It, it teaches, I think, businesses to be more, uh, to have a different mindset and be comfortable with ambiguity, mm -hmm. not wanting to get to the result fast and spend some time in a space that's and maybe uncertain and ambiguous. Yeah. So, Olia, thank you very much for all of your discussion so far. It has been absolutely fascinating, a real insight into the creative uh, performance space as we see it in 2021 post 
nearly post-COVID and in a place where businesses are interested in fast results for you know the deepest level of research that they can get, which isn't very deep if they want uh, fast results, of course. We have a little feature on this podcast and we call it, What Does It All Mean? You bring a piece of jargon that you know what it means, you hope that we don't know what it means, and then we guess at as to the definition of it. Are you up for that? Yep. Great. So, Olia, what is your piece of jargon for today? It is three words, which you might already know, James, since okay. your background. Um, so, hint, hint. Uh, so, three words are Deus ex machina. Well, I have an idea of what Deus ex machina means. I know that the, the translation, which is God is in the machine, right? Yep. So, what, what does that actually mean in terms of a creative piece of jargon? Well, I have my ideas. James Burford, what do you think? It's something I've heard of before, but obviously not, not a phrase that I've, I've come across frequently enough to have a good understanding of it. But I think it is something to do with like power or like having to follow a plan or something like that. I'm going to have a stab at what I think it might mean. And I think it's to do with writing. To me, I've heard it you being used where you write your characters into... Um, into an unwinnable situation and then out of nowhere another character comes in and ensures that these characters win that situation that's very close yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fate mechanism okay <laughs> yeah what do you think amy what is it I mean, that's not what I was going for at all. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say something very similar to James Burford, which was God is in the machine. So I would have been very boring with that and said it's about the process of communication between your actors. So, it, yeah, I, I'm not going to go further into that because I know it's completely off. Well, it's definitely process of communication. So mm. everything that actually everybody just said can neatly unfold into the definition. Mm. I mean, in a very simple way, it's it's you know it comes from from Greek um, Greek theater, and although it's a Latin, but it's from Greek, um, but <laughs> from uh, ancient Greece, from ancient Greek theater, which I'm not going to try to say it in Greek. Those six <laughs> methods. No, big enough to say it in Latin. But it is that moment uh, in writing. Definitely, it would be written by by a playwright. That, that at this point there is Deus ex machina on stage, and it is a essentially a device. It's a theater device where um, actors who are playing gods are emerging on stage using a machine. Okay. And they solve the problems that would seem unsolvable. So there is almost like a fate mechanism, hence they're gods, because only gods can, can solve those issues. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting plot device, which it, I think those kind of devices just really um, bring in play and uh, bringing a sense of uh, what theatre can do best which is play with constructs and moments and um yeah it's a great device i think yeah. mm. Ex machina. <laughs> merge yeah, yeah. <laughs> a nice like way of saying it's a nice way of saying it's a get out of jail free card for the uh for the characters that yeah. are in a yeah. bit of a sticky situation exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, amy you spoke to us before we started recording and you, you've you've got a um what does it all mean piece of jargon have you so the piece of jargon that I have is negative capability. And just for context, so we learn the definition of this on MA creativity. Negative mm. capability. So for me, <laughs> it kind of just sounds like it's a euphemism to describe someone who's not very good at their job. <laughs> They've got negative capability. <laughs> just, see what I, just see what I mean? like. These guys aren't fit for the job. Well, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting take. I I would hazard a guess at this being more to do with the capability <laughs> of the organisation, of course. Uh, but it, uh, in more simple terms, maybe they just there is too much to do without the expertise in the organisation. 
So you have both taken a very negative, understandably, view on what... Yeah. I think it's because of the word negative. Funny that. <laughs> I, I would like to read out the definition for you, because then I just, do not... Just so you don't get it wrong. Yeah. It, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie is laughing. Um, but yeah, we, we can explain it a little more. So, Or maybe or maybe Ollie should explain it and then see if it matches up with the actual definition. No, <laughs> like, she's shaking her head. <laughs> she's shaking her head across me on Zoom. Can I teach you that? <laughs> Negative capability is a phrase first used by the romantic poet John Keats in 1817 to explain the capacity of the greatest writers, so particularly Shakespeare, to pursue a vision of artistic beauty even when it leads them into intellectual confusion <laughs> James's face and uncertainty so as opposed to a preference for certainty over artistic beauty and the reason why I thought of that is because Olya was talking about this idea especially when we're thinking about um, Arts Council funding applications that being able to be in that state of uncertainty and accepting it as part of the process and I like to think of it as, you know, are you a process person or are you a product person? And negative capability is increasingly used in business contexts. So um, it is something that we used a lot on MA Creativity as a course in all of the work that we did. So it's allowing yourself to be in that creative space, you know, where you don't have the answers yet. And, and that's okay. Uh, Olya, I'm not sure if you want to add anything onto that, but I just love, I think it's such a beautiful... Well, yeah, I mean, that is what I'm, I was talking about, the, the mindset of an of, of artist, of a real creative person, is that you actually dig it. You actually yeah. love the uncertainty and the mystery and, and you, you, know, you befriend your doubt and say, oh, here you are again, my doubt. Hello. Okay, well, <laughs> you're here. I'm not going to follow you right now, but we're going to have, you can have a conversation. And, and sometimes you have a conversation with your doubt. Usually I do that in the morning and it pushes me out of bed to start doing work. <laughs> and, then, and then I start doing work and doubt goes away. And, and then, you know, something else comes in. But, but those are actually creative friends. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much, Olia, for joining us once again. Uh, we have a variety of speakers on this series of Incommunicado, so to make sure you don't miss out, be sure to get involved. Amy, would you like to tell our wonderful listeners how they can get involved? So you can find us across most of the social media channels at Incom Podcast. That's I-N-C-O-M-M Podcast. Thanks, Amy. And James, when they get to those places, what do you think they should do? Well, that is the burning question. So when you get there, uh, make sure to uh, join in our conversation uh, by commenting, following, subscribing uh, and liking across all of the social media um, platforms. And if you want to get into uh, direct contact with us, uh, you can drop us a line um, via email at hello at uh, incompodcast.com. You certainly can. If you want to help support the podcast, please head over to the website. That's www.incompodcast.com to find further instructions on how to do so. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll catch up with you in the next episode.